0: Um, there is a lot of opinions and different ways people view what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there's just no possible way in one sermon that I can deal with all of that this morning. My goal is to try to provide an overview of the major themes and what I believe are the important points concerning the baptism of the Holy Spirit And my prayer is that today when you leave, you have learned enough and you know enough to feel confident about what you believe about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'm really going to try to do this by simply sharing what I would call three practical facts about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The first thing I want us to look at this morning is the purpose. You know, why? What is the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? We find the answer to that in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1, but for context, I want to read verses 1 through 8 together. In Acts 1, verses 1 through 8, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That's where the term baptized with the Holy Spirit comes from. So when he had come together... Or when they had come together, they asked him, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel?" He said to them, "It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." Go ahead and leave verse eight up there for a moment. Jesus explains here the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here is our first practical fact about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The purpose is this, empowering us to witness with impact empowering us to witness with impact. What I want us to see is that clearly the baptism of the Holy Spirit is identified with supernatural, identifiable power. We're going to look at four passages. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 42 now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived... They took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. We see the power, the supernatural power, to give a man strength who had been lame from birth. We see the raising of someone from death to life. In Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, we have a general statement about multitudes being healed. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. I want to look at one last uh, passage here dealing with power. Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. There's a reason I've selected this passage This is, what we're reading is when they initially instituted what we call deacons in the church. So the ministry had grown so large that the disciples are like, there's too much work for us to do. We need some help. And so here's what they said. It's just important that you see the wording here. The, 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 The apostles said, choose from among yourselves, spiritual men. So these are not Apostles. These are normal people in the church who demonstrated a sincere godly life to follow the Lord. That's who we're talking about here. Very important you understand that. Stephen is one that is selected, and so he becomes what we call a deacon. Now, knowing that we're dealing with ordinary people in the church, let's finish. So they pick Stephen And let's go all the way down to verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Clearly, the great wonders and signs, the filling of the Holy Spirit, wasn't for some group of select 11 individuals It was the normative experience of the New Testament believer. Now, we see power. Notice we are empowered to witness. I'm only going to give you one example because I've got so much ground to cover this morning. But the the principle applies every single time here. The purpose of the power was to create an opportunity to witness. The power itself is a witness, if that makes sense. Let's look at what Peter said after he raised the man up who had been lame from birth. Verse 11 of chapter 3. Speaking of this man who had just miraculously been able to walk. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this, we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has he made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So we see here that the power to heal the sick, the power that raised this man to to make him walk was used as an opportunity to witness what I will call with impact. It's indisputable. And he's sitting there telling these people, you knew this guy. So you want to know why? You want to know what's happening? What's happening is Jesus, whom you killed and crucified, has risen from the dead, demonstrating he's exactly who he said he is. And God's poured out his spirit on his people. And so what we see is that the empowering of the Holy Spirit improves, if you will, our ability to witness. And here's the truth. Not everybody that witnessed these things became a Christian. It's actually fascinating the number of people who witnessed the miraculous and still refuse to follow Jesus. But understand being empowered to be a witness. On one hand, we are a witness to those who need to be demonstrated to the reality, the power and presence of God. But to those who reject it, guess what happens when they stand before God? It's still a witness against them. The goal is that it is a witness to them, and they turn. But if they don't, it is still a witness against them when they stand before God. It's fascinating to me. I have seen God do the miraculous. I have seen people heal. I've seen two people healed of stage four cancer after they were sent home to die. We're done with chemo. We're done with radiation. And you can live for a year on chemo or radiation, or you can live for two to four and have a better two to four years or two to four months of your life before you die. Two times I've seen people like that completely healed of cancer. I've seen two people raised from the dead. In this room right now, there are about five or six of you who were with me at one event where we saw somebody raised from the dead. And I mean actually dead. I mean like they were done working on the guy dead, waiting for the coroner to ro- show up dead. That's what I mean when I say dead. Dead. For several minutes. I've seen it happen. And it's fascinating to me that when I've seen it happen, it does one of two things. There are people that are like, whoa, God is real. And then there's people that are like, whoa, that's amazing, but I'm still not going to serve God and I'm still not going to repent. And the, the reality is, is in the end, that event will be a witness against those people. That God did everything he needed to ever prove that he is there, that he is real, that he has power, that he cares, that he is capable. And they still chose To say no to God and go their own way. The purpose is to empower us to be witnesses, brothers and sisters. Now, I remember for years, um, so you're gonna kinda hear this morning my journey of going from what I used to believe to what I believe today. And full disclosure, the camp of people that I came from, much more conservative, traditional Baptist theology. And here's what we believed. Here's what I taught. If you ever heard me preach, you know, 17, 20 years ago, you heard me regurgitate these statements that, you know, the the Holy Spirit was only given for a brief period of time for the apostles to prove that they were the apostles. Because it was necessary to demonstrate that God was with them So that people would believe what they said. But now that we have the Bible, it's no longer necessary for people to to, to believe. uh, They don't need the demonstration. They don't need the proof. And I look back at me repeating those things, and it's just stupid. First of all, the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. Nowhere does the Bible actually say that anywhere. And furthermore, if it helped empower people to be a witness and it helped provide credibility to their message, why would it not help us? That doesn't make sense, does it? So the purpose is ultimately empowering us to witness with Impact and you will find repeatedly when people demonstrated the power of God in a supernatural way, it was used as a platform to teach Jesus and to preach Jesus and to turn people to Jesus. Number two, next practical fact the manifestation of the Spirit. Now, before I answer what the manifestation of the Spirit is. I want to make sure that you understand that word. I I just despise using words that people don't know. They're churchy words. But there's not a better word than manifestation. So if you don't know what that word is, I want to make sure you know. Biblically, the Bible teaches us that there are times when God makes himself tangible, like here on earth. One example would be when Jesus took on flesh and became human. That is an example of when God, whom we can't see or touch, manifested himself in such a way that we could see and touch. Make sense? So that's what it manif- really means to be manifested. It's, God is a spirit. He, he, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. There are a handful of times in the Old Testament where, you know, angels or an angel would make themselves physically known, where you could physically see them, you could physically hear them, that's an example of something from the spiritual world being manifested in the physical world. Okay, so what is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit? What does it look like in real life when it happens? Here's the answer. It is varied. I'm gonna introduce a statement that I'll make sense of here in a moment, but it's a very important statement. This is that. Now, I want to take you back to our text. We've already read it, but I want you to read verses 14 through 16 again of Acts chapter 2. Holy Spirit's fallen. Everybody's already did their speaking in tongues thing, which I'm going to address in a little bit. But look what Peter says. Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let us be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now listen to this statement. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Some versions say, "This is that which was." It's just the same way of saying the same, a different way of saying the same thing. Now, follow me. There's a reason I read that whole text in Acts chapter two. Here's what Peter said. What you all just witnessed over there, that you're wondering what happened, that is what Joel spoke about. And then he goes on to quote it. Do you notice that nowhere did Joel ever mention speaking in tongues? Nowhere. Also, when he quoted Joel, Joel talks about Old men having dreams and young men having visions and young, you know, the maidservants prophesying. None of that's happening right then. And yet, at the most significant moment in the history of mankind concerning the Holy Spirit being poured out on God's people, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, make no mistake about it, folks, it's the same thing. What's happening here?" is the same thing Joel told us about back there. And this is what's important. The experience is varied. It does not look the same. But he says, this is that. Now, I'm gonna kind of demonstrate, I'm gonna try to do two things here. I'm gonna demonstrate to you that the experience is not the same, and I'm gonna deal with the elephant in the room. So, those of you that are maybe new to church, maybe you were saved here, you never had much, you know, church uh, background. You don't know there's an elephant in the room right now, but there is, and I want to explain what it is and I want to deal with it. So I'm going to deal with the elephant in the room, and I'm going to deal with, I'm going to, I'm going to use it to show you that the experience is varied. So. Because I don't have hours, I'm going to make an oversimplification. I'm going to tell you there are two general thoughts and that most people fall into one or the other, okay? So here's the two. There's a big deal with speaking in tongues. And the deal is so big, it's the elephant in the room. It's so big that it, it really clouds what I would say the truth about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, Because when we start talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, secretly, that's what a lot of camps are talking about. And so you have your one camp over here, we'll call them the Baptists, and you got your Baptist people over here that are like, you know what, the baptism of the, the speaking in tongues is only when God supernaturally allows you to speak in another language and people understand it. Clearly, that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. That's what the Bible teaches. And so when someone speaks in tongues, the reason God would do that is because they can't speak the same language to who they need to communicate to. And so that is what speaking in tongues is. And most Baptist people will say, God still can do that today, but it's certainly not what the Pentecostal folks say. And then you come over, over here to the great big extreme of what I will call Pentecostalism. And by the way, I love Pentecostals. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. If I had to go into battle, spiritual war, I'm going with my Pentecostal folks, not my Baptist people. And I, I, don't, mean to hurt, I don't mean to hurt my Baptist friends' fault, hurt feelings. But I'm not Pentecostal, and you're going to find out why. I'm going to show you where I think they go wrong. The general argument over here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit is always evidenced with speaking in tongues. And so there's this great big push to get people baptized in the Holy Ghost. And how do we know that you've done that? You speak in tongues. Now, what I want to show you is why, biblically, both views are wrong. I want to deal with tongues. Because if I don't, if I don't, there is a good portion of people in here who will go and be like, what about this, what about that? So we're going to go through tongues. We're going to hit a big little comma right here. Joplin's going to deal with what I don't want to deal with, but I need to. Speaking in tongues. Then I'm going to come back to what I feel like matters, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You ready? We've already dealt with Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, I want you to notice something. They all heard in their own language. You need to understand that's what it says. They were fascinated. There was a miracle that happened there where everybody heard in their own language. Notice there were no interpreters. There were none. No interpreters in Acts chapter 2. They were not needed. Everybody heard. Everybody understood. And I've read it over and over and over again, and I am personally convinced, based upon the wording, you go back and read it again yourself, that everybody heard in their own language. I think that's literally what it means. In other words, I don't believe that Peter was over here speaking French, and John's over here with the German crowd, and James is back over here speaking Spanish. I don't believe that. I believe they were all speaking and supernaturally there was also the miracle of hearing where everybody heard it in their own language. And that's what I believe. That's the way I read Scripture. However, it's undeniable there were no interpreters and everybody understood their own language. Yes? The next time that we see a group of people baptized with the Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 8. And I think it's important to understand there's a progression that's happening. There are three, really, there's, okay, there's four group baptisms of the Holy Spirit. We're going to look at all four. But the first three are progressive, and it's important to note that in Acts chapter 2, you have the Jewish believers who are now Christians. In Acts chapter 8, you have the Samaritans, which were a half-breed. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile. And then in Acts chapter 10, you have the Gentiles. Full-blown Gentiles, like non-religious in any capacity, they don't have any tie to the Jewish people, and that's the progression. So we see, we what we really see is God demonstrating to the world that this thing that we're talking about here is for everybody. We saw how it looked with the the uh, Acts chapter two folks. Let's see how it happened in Acts chapter eight in verses fourteen through twenty. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the holy spirit for they had not for he had not yet fallen on any of them but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus then they laid their hands on them and they received the holy spirit now when Simon saw that the holy spirit was given through the laying on of the hands of the apostles he offered them money saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is the next time that we see a group of people all receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Incredibly important passage in Joplin's opinion, because notice nobody speaks in tongues. My Pentecostal friends that I've sat with before, they're like, every time somebody received the Holy Spirit, they always spoke in tongues. No, they didn't. Here we are at time number two. Now, I want to I want to address something. Something happened here though, because Simon, the sorcerer, he saw the power. That's undeniable. Whatever happened, we don't know. God didn't tell us, whatever happened, He saw the power and He wanted it, and he's like, "Hey, I'll, I'll pay you to do that thing to me." What we know is is that whatever happened here was evidenced. You could see it with your eyes. It was seen, it was heard, it was visible. That's undeniable. But God, in his great wisdom, and some of my Pentecostal friends will say, what, what they saw was them speaking in tongues. Maybe. I will give you that. Maybe. let me tell you something. God's the one who wrote the word. God, Holy Spirit inspired it. And God, in his great wisdom, chose not to say that there. So I'm not going to say it. I don't know what they were doing there. All I know is it was visible. And all I know is, is that, and this is, I'm going to introduce this, I'm going to say the statement again. This, it's that. Same thing that happened in Acts chapter 2, it's just different. This is that. It's all the same. So let's keep moving. Let's see what happens with the Gentiles. Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. couple things about this passage we cannot deny. Here we see them speaking in tongues. But it's important to note, interestingly enough, here, it actually happens immediately. Like the outpouring of the Holy Spirit happened immediately. He's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles who aren't, they're not saved. They're interested. They want to know Peter's witnessing with great boldness and authority. And the Holy Spirit's poured out on them. These guys are baptized with water afterwards. Peter's like, whoa, okay, so that's exactly what happened to us. Look, we're like right here at ground level, folks. There's some things you need to know. You need to get baptized, uh, water baptism. You've already been fire baptized, but you need to be water baptized too and and start living your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is different than the way it happened in Acts chapter 2. And the same principle that I'm about to show you from Acts chapter 19 also applies here. So in Acts chapter 19, last group, baptism of the Holy Spirit recorded for us in scriptures. Acts chapter 19, and it happened that while Apollos, verse 1, was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were, Then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying there were about 12 men in all. Here again, yes, we see speaking in tongues, but I want you to notice it's very different from Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we got a bunch of people that speak different languages and everybody's hearing in their own language. My Baptist friends over here are like, that's the only time ever God does this stuff. Like when somebody can't understand. We got 12 people here who all speak the same language, folks. And the same thing applies in Acts chapter 12 with the Gentiles. This wasn't a bunch of people speaking, you know, different languages that supernaturally needed God to help them understand so that they could communicate truth. They all spoke the same language. They were twelve people walking together, and so this is not the exact same thing that happened in Acts chapter two, but this is that. You see what I'm saying? It's not always the same. Now I want us to look at so the church grows. The church is several years. I want to say about 40 years go by. Paul goes and helps plant lots of churches. The church has exploded. There has been structure put in place. And now, years down the road, we're going to look at the apostle Paul writing some things to the church because this issue had become a problem in the church. And we're going to take those things that Paul says. And we're going to look at them in the light of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses, we're going to start in verse 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 13 and then 27 through 30. Now, there are varieties of gifts. But the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom... To another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. That's what I'm trying to communicate here. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. I think it's impossible to uh, deny that at this stage in the church, the interpretation of tongues was something that was a gift of the Holy Spirit. But nowhere in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19, nowhere is there the interpretation of tongues. It's not even needed. Everybody just understood. What am I trying to tell you? This is that. And those of us that have tried to take all of this and put it in a real clear box, which one are you guys on? Who's my Baptist group over here? Who's my Pentecostals over here? It's, too, it's oversimplified. It makes us feel better if it's real simple and we can just choose a box and just stay in it. It just makes me real comfortable. I'm going to surround myself with people that all are part of my box and we're just going to go on down the road. But I've clearly demonstrated biblically, brothers and sisters, it's not that simple. It's different. Almost every time, there's something that's a little different about it. And we've got instructions. And then we've got verse 27 of the same First uh, Corinthians 12. Now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? You know, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Are all prophets? The answer is no. Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? The answer is no. No, 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 no. My Pentecostal friends are over here like, but everybody prays in tongues. Okay, based upon what? Acts chapter two, man. Like they're not praying in tongues there. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19, nowhere is any of them praying in tongues. None of them. They're actually speaking in tongues. And so the conclusion that somehow the baptism of the Holy Spirit means everybody prays in tongues, it's just nonsense. I love my Pentecostal friends. I really do. If I had to pick one at a camp to be in, Joplin would probably be over here. But I'm not willing to deny the clear teaching of the Word of God to make anybody happy. Paul goes on. I want to look at a couple more instructions about tongues. You're going to find out why we're not a Pentecostal church and uh, kind of the way that I tend to operate. Last piece on this big elephant in the room, and then I want to get back to what matters to me, understanding the big picture of the baptism the Holy Spirit. How can you know that you've received the baptism? I want to get there. But trust me, if I didn't deal with this elephant, it would be the topic of everybody's lunch afterwards. 1 Corinthians 14, last passage here on tongues. We're going to read verses 6 through 19. Uh, Yeah, I think so. Yep, 6 through 19. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will it benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So, With yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is intelligible, how that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. Now, question, is that what was happening in Acts 2? It's not, is it? In Acts 2, everybody knew it was being said. Here we're dealing with a different variety of tongue that everybody doesn't know what's being said. It's a language that everybody doesn't understand. It's different. And Paul says concerning that type of tongue, it doesn't help very much. For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, he who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Here we see the idea of praying in tongues. Something else I deny that everybody's supposed to do. Nowhere does it say. In fact, this is one of the first times we actually see the term used here. We don't see it in Acts 2. We don't see it in Acts 8. We don't see it in Acts 10. We don't see it in Acts 19. There, they're speaking in tongues. Here, we're praying in a tongue, and notice that the person praying doesn't fully understand what they're praying. So what should I do? That's the question in verse 15. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. He says, I'm going to do both. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, this is an important verse, the great conclusion of the matter. In church, that's right here, brothers and sisters. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind In order to instruct others, than 10,000 words in a tongue. He goes on to say that this would be really confusing to outsiders, like non believers. They come up in the church and see you all speaking gibberish. That's not going to be an empowering witness. They're going to leave thinking you're nuts. That's what's going to happen. I'm a Pentecostal kind of guy. Full disclosure, full disclosure. Your pastor prays in tongues. I have for 17 years. My guess is there's not one human being in this room that can say you've ever heard me pray in tongues. It's because I don't get up and scream it out loud for everybody here. Because believe it or not, I'm not actually praying to you. I'm praying to God. And God doesn't need me to scream it super loud for him to hear it. And so I, I, I take this verse seriously when we gather together. And I, so understand that about me. And understand I've been in some Pentecostal places that downright weirded me out. I'm like, Folks, we need some 1 Corinthians 14 up in this place. (laughs) That said, here's here's what I want you to see. So so this is our position here. This is Joplin Emerson's position. If, you know, the Bible doesn't teach us everybody's supposed to speak in tongues. It clearly tells us that. You can't point to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 10, or Acts chapter 19 as evidence everybody is supposed to pray in tongues. And so the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not speaking in tongues. It's an evidence. And it can be faked like almost anything else. Some of the most non-spiritual people I know think that they are some tongue-speaking, you know, magicians. And I'm like, Holy Spirit needs to get a hold of your heart first. And you need some fruits of the Spirit here, folks. Love, joy, peace. Some of them are mean as a snake. Cut you up with their tongue. Stab you in the back. I've I've had somebody (laughs) trying to explain to me what they said to their family members who didn't believe this. They're like, and I just told them, you will never know the love of God like I know the love of God because you don't have the Spirit like I do. I'm like, oh, I bet that worked well. I mean, they are at home right now hitting their knees to get that kind of love. This is why... How many of you are familiar with uh, the great love chapter? You know, that, uh, uh, the, you know if I speak with you know, the tongue of angels and I give my body to be burned and I give everything but have not love, I'm like a sounding gong... You're probably all familiar with that. If you've ever been to a Christian wedding, you've probably heard it put in there somewhere. Did you know that chapter is between chapter 12 and chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians? It's right between them. Chapter 12, where I was reading about all the different gifts and how we're all one body, and then chapter 14, where he goes back to dealing with what it, you know some rules in the church. Chapter 13's right there in the middle. Like, look, love's the greatest of all these folks. Doesn't mean we shouldn't desire the gifts. We should. We certainly shouldn't try to make excuses. You know, I said this last service. The last thing in the world that you want in your faith is somebody who has never demonstrated the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit explaining to you why you shouldn't have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's a red flag. I don't want some teacher explaining to me why he's powerless and why I should be powerless too. Red flag. He doesn't get it. At the same time, we have to recognize that these things can become divisive. And the very moment that we stop loving and caring and, and, and love is above all, and we start making those snarky statements like the one I made, you, we're getting nowhere. So here's what we see. The manifestation of the spirit is varied. It's varied. By the time you get to 1 Corinthians 12, there's a bunch of other stuff named. You've got supernatural wisdom. It's not just smart guys. It's like supernatural wisdom. God said he would use the dumb to confound the wise. We're talking about, you know, uh, the the, the gift to discern spirits, the gift to heal, the gift of miracles. we, We see that it manifests itself in a lot of different ways. We have to understand that. We'll miss the boat when we believe this is the box. So here's what it looks like. Because guess what? Acts chapter 2 is a little different from Acts chapter 8. And Acts chapter 8 is a little different from Acts chapter 10. And Acts chapter 10 is a little different from Acts chapter uh, 19. And then by the time you get to the instruction of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you're seeing it dealt with in ways that don't even show up in Acts chapter 2 through to chapter 19. You know what? Here's what Peter said about it. This is that. Make no mistake about it. It's all the same. And we've got to give freedom for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to work it out in your individual life, however God chooses to work it out. I don't get to dictate to you what that looks like for you. But here's the one thing we have to see is that it is something that is tangible. It is something that is evidenced. It is something that is visible. It is a real act. It is a real thing. And so now I want to deal with the question of, no, not yet. I got one more thing. Acts chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. The last thing I want you to see about this baptism, this power, is the statement that those who received it used it. So we've already read Acts chapter 3, Peter healing this man. But I want you to pay attention to what he said. In verse 6, I'm going to start in verse 4. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. What I'm about to say is going to be offensive to some people, but I can assure you it will not be any more offensive to you than it was to me when I first heard it and had to look the mirror in the face myself. Peter did not show up and say to this guy, man, I am really sorry about your luck. And I'm not real sure what the will of God is, to be quite honest. I'm not God. So what we're going to do, we're going to put this in the hands of a good and just God. And I'm going to kneel, and I'm just going to pray, God, whatever your will is, whether it's to heal this guy or to keep letting him suffering, you never know. Maybe God's still got some more lessons to teach you through suffering, sir. Whatever your will is, God, we trust you with all things. In Jesus' name, amen. He didn't do that. That's what most of us pastors do our whole life, because it's really easy I don't ever have to actually demonstrate any type of power whatsoever. I get to put it all off on God. It's all, and, 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 I, and I never have to show my impotence. So I can hide behind it, blame my impotence on the will of God. That's not what he did. He said, what I have, I give it. He had an understanding that he possessed something he had the authority to use. Now, here's the reality. If we don't understand that we possess it, we won't use it. If we don't understand we have authority, we won't use it. So let's answer the question, how do we know if we've been baptized with the Holy Spirit? How do you get baptized with the Holy Spirit? I promise you, while some of you are nervous, I think you're going to love the answer. I really do. I think you're going to love it. We have to go to a text, and we've got to look at what Jesus or what Peter said. We've already read the text, but I want to read it again. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 33. Peter is talking about why the baptism of the Holy Spirit has come, and I want you to listen to what he says. This Jesus God raised up, and of this we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The assurance that I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit is because the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a finished act. Now, brothers and sisters, we receive it, if you will. We experience it, if you will, the exact same way we have learned to do everything, this entire sermon series, is by looking at the finished work of Christ. So how has he dealt with my sins? Those of you that have been students of this study, you know it's through the blood of Jesus. So what happens if you don't know, you don't know that the blood of Jesus is God's final answer to your sins, and you think that every time you do sin, God's angry with you and you don't have, and you, you gotta work yourself back into right standing with God. You know what happens? You live a life of condemnation. You never feel like it's good enough and you never have any confidence to approach God. But while you live your life that way, would we all agree as we've learned that's not the way you're supposed to live and that's not, God, God's given us provision so that we don't have to. But the only way to break free from that condemnation is to throw yourself on the trust of the blood of Jesus. And so I know that I know that I know. It doesn't matter how I feel. I know that I know that I know that my sins are forgiven in the sight of God because I've confessed them to God and the blood of Jesus is sufficient to atone for all my sins. Well, what about the old nature? As we've already studied, God has dealt with my old nature in Christ. And would you agree that when you don't know that, you spend your whole life trying to face the old man and make him quit being bad, you live in condemnation. But as we've already studied, when you learn the path and you recognize you've got to stop looking in that direction, you've got to look to the cross and see that God says, he sees your old man is crucified, there, dead, done, it's already done. The greatest penalty of all penalties has already been done. And so God sees you, that old nature of you dealt with, it's done. I have to look to Jesus if I'm going to find peace in that. I've got a new nature. Why? Because Christ is risen from the dead. And why has the Holy Spirit been poured out? Because he has been exalted to the right hand of God, and the promise of the Father was fulfilled, and the Holy Spirit was poured out. It is done on all of God's sons and daughters. It is a done deal, brothers and sisters. It's over. It's done in Christ Jesus. But if I don't know that, then I live feeling like it hasn't happened. I live looking for a certain event to make it happen. So in my life, I had to go through the exact same process that I've had to do this entire sermon series that I've shared with you all about, where it's like, I've got to recognize, do do I agree with God's word or not? And so Joplin's at this point where he's like, but... But I know it says that it was poured out, but like God, none of these things are happening in my life. And so it must not be poured out on me. And I had to get to the same place where I'm like, you got to quit arguing with God. And here's what I accept. It's done. It is poured out. I know it's poured out. You want to know why the Holy Spirit's poured out on me? Because Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and the Holy Spirit has been poured out. That's why it's poured out on me. I know that I know that I know that I know that I know. It's done. It's done. And I had to have confidence in that, and my heart changed, and the way I looked at things changed where it's like, okay, God, he, this, this statement God had to use to really help me stop this trying to get something, and I don't know if this will make sense to you, but it's a statement that absolutely helped me a ton. Stop trying to get it. You already have it. So I'm like, Okay. So I have it. And I, I begin this process just by faith. Like, God, I know I, know I have it. I don't, I don't wonder anymore. I know that I know that I know that I know that I know. And the reason I know, it's not because I've seen it in my life. It's not because I've healed anybody yet. It's not because I've raised the dead. It's, I can't point to anything that says this is how I know I have it. But I don't need to point to it because here's what I know. I know for a fact it's happened because your word says Jesus was exalted and the Spirit's been outpoured on your, on your church the disciples were the only one that were told to wait for that one-time event. It was just them. Wouldn't everybody else wait? Wouldn't everybody else go back to Jerusalem and Terry? It was just that one-time event. And brothers and sisters, that event has occurred. It has happened. And so there has to be a sense of faith in the finished work of Jesus. That's the fascinating thing about all of this. It's all about Jesus from the start to the finish, from how he deals with my sins, all the way to empowering me and filling me with the Holy Spirit. It's all about the finished work of Christ. As my prayers changed, where it was like, all right, God, I don't see it manifesting in my life like I want it to, but here's what I've got settled in this heart of mine. It has happened to me. I know it has. I know that I know that I know that I know that it has because your word says it has, and so I'm going to believe your word. And now, God, I'm asking you to help it manifest in my life. God, help me to have a sense of faith. Like I want to get to the place where Peter did, where like I've got the courage to actually pray for for healing. I'll never forget the very first time that I was forced in a place where like um, I begin to. I, it's, I can't explain it other than I begin to actually experience some of the manifestations of these things in my life. And we had a friend whose whose mother had uh, had died and was on life support and was going to be there for three or four days until family could come up to pull the plug. And I'm like, I, I believe God's going to heal this woman. I believe He's going to raise her back to life. And I get up there and her husband's there, and her husband's an atheist, non-believer. And it's just me and him in the room. And man, I feel the boldness as Peter did here to be specific. And I'm just like, God, can you make the guy leave? You know? like Just in case this doesn't work. I don't want to. And this is how we think. You guys are, you guys are no different than me. I don't want to hurt his faith. I don't want to pray for healing if it don't happen. It'll just be one more reason that this guy will think, you know, what he's thought. And I couldn't get past it. I knew what God had called me to do, and I'll never forget, praying very specifically for this woman's brainwaves to come back in, the damage to be reversed, her life to be restored. And I had such faith, like I knew she was going to raise up, just like this story. Like I knew I can't explain it, I just knew it. But it didn't happen. And and I left. And I remember thinking, it's going to happen when I leave. That way, you know, I don't get any credit. This is all about going to happen. Long story short, because I only got 10 minutes, and we need to close, and I'm not done. I continued to pray very specifically, three to four days until they pulled the plug. And it was at the moment that they pulled the plug that this woman came back to life. She opened her eyes. She looked at her daughter. The doctor says, hold on a second. These are nerves. It's going to take four to five minutes when there's no oxygen, and you're going to see a lot of twitching. And uh, her daughter said afterwards, talking about this vent, said, no, no, like I knew. My mom looked at me. Within 24 hours, she was up walking, feeding herself. She was a modern miracle. She's well-known here in this community. She was an organ donor, so there was people all over the nation waiting for her organs that had surgery scheduled that had to be called back, be like, this woman came back to life. It's a a recorded event here in Wichita, Kansas, happened about uh, 15 years ago. What I'm trying to tell you is that the days of miracles have not passed. There is such a thing as the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. No, it doesn't fit some clean little like here's what it always looks like. Come on up, speak after me. That's not how it works. In fact, if you're a true born-again child of God, you've already had the Spirit poured out on you. You might have lived your life like I did for many years where you didn't know that. And when you don't know that, you won't operate in it. You won't believe that. You won't walk in it. And it was hard for me to get around my mind, like, stop trying to get it. You already got it. Like, well, wait, how is that possible? If I already got it, surely it would show. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And it came just like everything. I'd have faith in God. Your Word says I have it. And so that's where I'm going to start. <clears throat> that's where I'm going to start. It's settled. I know you've poured your spirit out on me, but God, it's time for it to start working itself out in my life for your glory because I wanna be empowered with extra power to be an extra good witness. I wanna witness with impact. I want it to matter. Now I'll repeat what I've already said. I've seen God do a lot of amazing things and I have, it's been mind-blowing to me The people aren't much different than they were in the past. Most of them don't respond Most of them don't. Most people don't wake up and change. But I understand some do. There are some that do. And in the end, it'll still end up being a witness against those who don't. So this is an accomplished fact, brothers and sisters. But if there is no expectation, if we don't know that we have this power, we won't operate in it. I want you to note that on the day of Pentecost, that it says that something like a fire split in clove and cloven tongues was on everybody's head. It's an odd statement, but when you try to explain something that happens spiritual in human terms, sometimes it's, all we know is that's the best that he'd come up with. It was like fire and tongues on their head. Here's what I want you to note about that day. Everybody had the same fire. It wasn't like old Apostle Peter had two fires on his head so everybody knew he had a double portion. It wasn't like John's flame was larger than Mary's. Everybody had the exact same spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. If you have the Holy Spirit, you have God. That means you have all that you need. That means that, that the power, this is, this is why Paul, I believe, prayed for the church in Ephesians 1, that they would be awakened to the revelation of the power that they had. The same power that raised Christ from the dead. It's in you, it's in I. Brothers and sisters, I do not possess a lick of power that every single child of God does not also possess. And how it works itself out, how it manifests in my life might look a little different than how it manifests in yours. But you make no mistake about it. If you are a true blood-bought, born-again child of God, you have the Holy Spirit. And you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the most uh, cherishing memories that I've had in the last few years was when we were in Honduras this last time. Very spiritual night broke out. Uh, it was incredible. One of these days, I'll show pictures. People weeping. I mean, it was like a room of weeping, and they're not a people who weep, not 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 like this. And short story, it was as if the Holy Spirit just came into that room, and there was a woman, a, a teenage girl there from Honduras that was, like, seized by a demon. My belief is that she obviously was demon-possessed when she came in, but very similar to, like, Jesus's day. Every now and then, he'd be in church. Somebody would stand up that was demon-possessed, and it was like, wow, that person has been going to church all these years, but never really come in contact with the power of God, and now there's demons seizing him. This girl was seized by a demon spirit, and um, she couldn't really talk much. It wasn't it was, like she, it was like her voice was taken from her, and she seized up hard and went back and actually tried to pull one of our team members, like, down to the ground, and um, no joke, it freaked a lot of people out, including from our own team. We brought several people from our own team that were, like, disturbed, because they knew what they saw, They knew it was real, and it's a lot easier to hear about these things and read about them than it is to actually be there for the first time. But here was what blessed me. I watched a couple of ladies from our church that have just been under this ministry for several years now that have heard me say the same things that I've told you, just have a sense of confidence. This is my time. Most of the pictures of this event came from my phone as I stepped back and let average church members just deal with releasing some woman of a demon spirit. It was a very, uh, I I hate to use this word, but it was a proud moment in my life as a pastor. What was amazing was never once did they ever call for me. I watched the, it was like there wasn't time for it. We've got to do this now. And it wasn't like, Joplin! Because the same power I have, they have. And I could see it, because I've done this long enough. I could see it in their eyes. They knew. They knew that they knew that they knew. And when I, I could see it, they knew it's done, because that's the way it worked. We've got power in the name of Jesus. Brothers and sisters and demons do flee in the name of Jesus. When those who have the authority to use the name of Jesus use it correctly, we, and, and so I knew this is, this is just a matter of short time, 60 seconds or less. And it was a couple minutes, felt like, felt like 10, but it was a couple minutes. And I watched this woman get released, this girl get released of a demon. It was an incredible, incredible moment. It was beautiful. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that you as a child of God, you have power. And sometimes this theme of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is so polarized, I think it's because the enemy doesn't want it to work. He knows, the day, he knows how much more powerful our witness is when we, when we are walking the power of the Spirit. And so we've got these two kind of crazy extremes. It's like, which one are you? I'm neither, man. I just want to try to do this, what the Bible says. And my praise that some of you will be emboldened and empowered this morning to just trust God Maybe some of you are like where I was. You're like, okay, I'm willing to see this is a done thing. Like, it was done, and the reason it was done is because Jesus was exalted. It's not like something I have to do. It's not like God's willing to do it once I hit a certain number of days of tarrying or fasting or whatever. There's not a bunch of, there's not some formula. It's done. It's done. But I've got to believe it, and I've got to walk in it. As our worship team comes The last thing I want you to see, this is the last passage this morning. I've already read it, but I want to read three verses from Acts chapter 2. And I want you to see it again with your own eyes. This is not something that was for the select few. Peter is talking about this event. Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And listen to what he says, beginning in verse 37. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. My sins are dealt with through the blood of Jesus. My old nature is dealt with through the cross of Christ. I have a new nature because of the resurrection of God and I am empowered by the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I am empowered by it because Christ has been exalted to the right hand of God and the Spirit has been poured out. What we see is God's plan is fully complete to equip his church to be effective witnesses, brothers and sisters. It is fascinating to me that he told his disciples after all the years of training, wait here before you go. Wait here until this event happens and then go. To this preacher, that's important. It tells me that in order for us to be truly completely effective of what God's called us to, we need to understand the complete full way, the completeness of Christ. Next, now we move to the mission. What you might call the practical, like, so what should we do? How should we live right now in 2021, 2022, job Now that I understand how God deals with my nature, now that I understand God's equipped me for the mission, what is the mission? We're going to start that next week. How do we engage this world? What is the role of the church in Derby, Kansas? What is the role of church in the world that we live in? And so I'm excited to get there for